Welcome to the Think and Learn Smarter experience. Here I will sit down with people from all walks of life and talk with them about experiences that have shaped them. Everyone learns from their own experiences, but the best learn from the experiences of others. Now, let's get into it. So today I'm joined with uh, Luke O'Neill as Professor of Biochemistry in School of Bi- Biochemistry, which I believe, and Immunology at Trinity College Dublin. And in addition to this, he's got a, a few different podcasts he's even just doing there now. So he's got The Science of Luke O'Neill himself uh, with Pat Kenny, and then he's got Show Me the Science as well. Uh, Luke, thanks a million for taking the time to do this. I know you're flat out. Appreciate it a lot. Happy to help. Uh-huh. So before you became like probably the most well-known biochemist or immunologist in Ireland, uh, did you have a did you have a plan in mind to go down this route back in the day, like when you were 17, 18, just sitting there in the leaving cert hoping to get through it? Not not at all, no, <laughs> not at all. And I suppose honestly, um, I I like biology for the leaving cert. That was my favourite subject. Looking back at it now, I think you know. And I think I, the reason is a great biology teacher. I went to Pres Bray. I'm from Bray County, Wicklow. And my teacher was a guy called Fran Mooney, and he was a brilliant biology teacher. He turned all of us onto biology, really. And several of us went and did science then in university, you know. So it probably began then. But even then, though, like in sixth year and stuff, I, I liked English a lot. You know, English, I, I, that was one of my favorite subjects, too. So three or four things I was interested in. I never thought I'd become a professional scientist, I must admit. Although I was interested in it. So, so maybe if you're interested in something, it might lead you in a certain direction, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Did you always have Trinity in mind yourself, or was uh, any other colleges even abroad in uh, interview? No, I was only seventeen, and in those days there was no transition year, so you you finished your leave, and so you were still quite young, you know. I think I picked Trinity because it was on the dart line. Uh, it was mm-hmm. a train line in those days. That's how old I am. Uh, to get to UCD, it took a bus, so I figured I, I picked my university based on public transport. Isn't that a ridiculous thing? But there you are. I think, but I also like to look at the campus. I quite liked it, you know. So I figured that might be a nice place to go. But I could have gone anywhere. I didn't, I didn't have any particular uh, preferences, you know. Fair enough. Yeah. So I take it you were living at home then for the first few years, or did you move out at any stage? Or was no, I was. I was living at home for all four years. It was easy from Bray, you see. <laughs> it was easy to get in and out, so that was the easy thing to do, and it didn't cost me any money either. So that was the other good bit. Actually, no, I lived at home for all those years. Actually. Jeez, that's mad to think of now, because there's plenty of people who'd be moving out of home if they lived in Presbyterian. Oh, I left as quick as I could, though. I went to London for my PhD, you see. So that, that was a, I couldn't wait to leave home at that stage, you see. Yeah. So it propelled me, propel me out into the world as well. And that was like back in the late 80s, right, when you were out in, uh, yeah. in London? That's right. Yeah, no, I, got, I got my degree in 1985, and then I moved to London then, and I spent three years in London doing a PhD. Because mm-hmm. to be a scientist, a professional scientist, a PhD is like your entry-level qualification. So I knew that by then, I had to get a PhD. And then I was in Cambridge for a few years as well, and then back to Ireland in the 90s. Uh-huh. And when you're over in England, uh, in London in the 1980s, was there, there was a big Irish contingent out there then. Would you would you kind of stuck together, or would you spend more time with like your PhD uh, mates, essentially? Yeah, it was a mix. I mean, there were loads of Irish went. I mean, to give an idea, half my class emigrated, because in Ireland back then, there were no jobs at all, you know? And Ireland was sort of seen as a very kind of a, you know, shall we say, economically deprived country. and. We all couldn't wait to leave. I hate to say it, but it's true, you know. So when I went to London, a lot of my classmates were in London. That was a big destination for many of us, you know. So I'd already made sort of friends to hang out with, I guess, at that time. But then I, you know, I got to know people as well. In, in the, and then I went to the Royal College of Surgeons in, in Lincoln's Inn Fields in London. Met, met some great friends. They're still my friends now, you know. So I guess it was a mix. Although it was, in those days, it was difficult. The Irish were like, like not exactly welcome in London because the troubles were still going, you know. 
Mm -hmm. I was inclined to be we kind of hung out together, you know, kind of yeah, there was strength in numbers, maybe. So I probably spent more time with my Irish friends than anybody English. I get you, yeah, for sure. Geez, that's something you kind of take for granted these days now. Like there's there wouldn't really be that kind of um uh, thought about the Irish, at least nowadays. No, no it's funny times actually, because the IRA are very active, you know, there are bombs going off in London. It's outrageous now, I think it, isn't it, that the Irish were were planting bombs in London. It seems like the most you know un unlikely of things. But that created a certain atmosphere in London, you know. And the Irish were inclined to hang out together in different parts of London, like Kilburn was a famous place where we all used to meet up, you know. And there was a great, there was a great pub there called the Mean Fiddler, you know, which had great music. And I used to go to bands in the Mean Fiddler and meet up with all the Irish expats. So that, was, that was a good experience. I'd say so, yeah. And did your own band form at that stage or did you did you form in Trinity before that? No, I began, but well, I've been playing music since I was like maybe 13 or 14 years of age, I guess, you know. And then when I went to London, then I began to busk on the underground. That was my first thing I used to do. That's to make a bit of money, you see. And then I'd be in bands here and there. Uh, it took off when I was in Cambridge, though, with a proper band. And we began doing gigs in pubs. And uh, we did a fair few gigs in those years. It was great fun, you know. And that was the beginning of a slightly more professional approach, shall we say. You know? So that, that took off then. And then I came back to Ireland. Uh, kept up with the music to some extent. But then life got in the way. Kind of, you know, I had a couple of kids and stuff. And the science began to dominate, you know. But lately, in the last three or four years, the music is back again. I've been doing more music in the last three or four years. I guess, yeah. So I'd say you're raring to get back inside into the pubs and all that kind of oh, thing. Right. Again. Can't wait to get back into it again. We're, we're all dying for that, aren't we? You know, it's be Definitely, great. yeah. And uh, if you had to put a, if you had to have your magic wand, when do you reckon, the, and you had to guess when the pubs are going to be open again, you'd be there playing a live band, when do you reckon they'd be now? Well, if you look at the way the way the plan is set, the beer gardens will open, I think, June 7th. That's still the plan. So that, that'll be at the start of this, I suppose. You know, Now, indoor pubs, that's a bit longer because obviously there's a risk for this virus going indoors. So I can't see indoors coming back for maybe two or three months. We, we could play outdoors. I don't mind playing outdoors in the beer garden. That'd be just as good. So you never know. Yeah, yeah. It's just still probably an easier crowd than the 1980s Irish crew, I guess. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Now, mind you, they're all my age now. You see, my, my friends haven't changed. We've all got older together and they're still as rowdy as ever, so I wouldn't be so sure. Right, okay, fair enough, fair enough. And uh, I kind of touched on there, like, you're, you're pretty much the like the most well-known immunologist these days now in Ireland and definitely came to prominence, uh, well, for myself, and at least listened to you on the mornings. Everyone uh, has their own kind of story about yourself, but I know on, like, the Thursdays, my mum would go in to do the shopping and because there's only two people allowed in the shop at the same time in the butchers, I'd sit yeah. in the car and get, get, get up to date on what's going on. Oh, good, man. So yeah. have, you, have you had many people come up to you, like, just completely on the street and be like, I recognize you or I hear, I recognize your voice from somewhere. Does that happen much these days now? Well, the, the good news is I wear a mask, you know, so nobody can recognize me. <laughs> no, it does happen. I mean, of course, um, during lockdown, there weren't many people on the streets, so that made it a bit easier, maybe. But no, I'll, I'll have people come up to me and chat to me maybe or shout something at me you know and it's 90% it's positive and I must say it's great it's quite nice you know like just now actually walking back from New South Wales how's it all going Luke are we getting there you know and I'm going yeah it's looking good you know? so, so that's not bad I don't mind doing that it's quite nice to have that engagement and remember I mean my mission as a scientist is to get science out there I mean good lord COVID can you believe it I mean it's never been more relevant never more interesting to people so so in some ways it's a uh, it's fulfilling one of my dreams in a strange sense to communicate science to people in a way that people find helpful. And with the mission is to just inform people and give them some some hope. I mean, my mission is always to tell people science will beat this, you know, and, that, yeah. and that's common true, thank you. And I know you've touched on it before in different podcasts and that, but like, what do you think are the major advantages, we'll say, 
with having the, all this research been put into COVID and that kind of uh, those kind of vaccines and stuff, what do you reckon? Like, is there any particular um, viruses, or I know the coronavirus themselves, but is there any other areas of science that we reckon will put a big dent in it now? Very much so. Yeah, I mean, the great success has been these so-called RNA vaccines. You may have heard of those, and that's Moderna and uh, Pfizer, BioNTech, and and we always thought RNA would be a useful thing to use as a vaccine or as a medicine in various situations. And now those vaccines have proved it. So what's happening now is there's a massive effort around malaria, TB, you know, hepatitis C even. So we may well get vaccines for other diseases where we still don't have a vaccine. And then also cancer is a big one actually, because you could get the immune system to, to attack a tumor, remember, because tumors are alien in your body as well. So why not get the immune system to latch on and kill a tumor? And RNA might bring that forward as well. So I think a big thing people, people, people do realize this, and, and of course I've been saying it, all these discoveries could be useful outside COVID in all different kinds of contexts. So that's, that's the really exciting part of this, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And uh, in the last year or two, you, you actually had your own business yourself and you managed to sell it off. Uh, I've always been kind of curious because that must be kind of a strange thing where you're, you kind of were in the scientific route, but in the end, you end up becoming a businessman and selling off your company. How did, how did you find that whole transition? Yeah, well, it's not unusual. I mean, I suppose if you're a scientist and you make a discovery in a lab, say in UCD or Trinity or whatever in the university, and you make a discovery that's useful, what do you do with that discovery, right? Now, you've got a couple of options. You can license it to a big company and let them develop it, you know? And that happens a bit. And then the company gives the university money because the thing began in the university, you know? Or you can form your own company. And I began doing that in 2003, actually. My first company, Upsana, was founded. That one failed, dismally, by the way. You know, you got to fail a few times as well. But the most recent one, Implazome, yeah, we managed to strike gold with that in a way. Now, what happened there was my area is trying to discover new anti-inflammatory drugs. So I work on inflammatory diseases. That is many diseases involve inflammation. Arthritis would be a big one, for instance. MS in the brain, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. They're all inflammatory, you know. And we discovered a brand new anti-inflammatory drug, which is really exciting, you know. And then we had evidence it might work in these diseases. And so we got the company going, Inflazome. And then lo and behold, we got bought by Roche, one of the big drug companies. And that wouldn't be unusual because obviously, you know, you need to get in bed with one of the big guys. They've got very deep pockets. They can take things forward. And the big thrill for me, Connell, is it'll be inpatients now, you know. But they will start clinical trials any day now, actually, they're going to start clinical trials. So in other words, wouldn't that be tremendous? A discovery in my lab in Trinity with many others now. It's a massive collaboration, you know, with lots of different people ends up in, in patients and let's see if it works. So, so it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be that unusual. The, the, I'm more the scientist, remember. So I, I brought the science to those companies. And it was a real thrill to work with business people because they know the business side. They can raise the money. They can do all the numbers with investors and so on. I can bring the science. In. And then they need me and I need them. It's very much a, 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 co a cooperative thing, you know, a huge collaboration between them. Definitely. And would you have ever considered like going into the private sector solely? Uh, that's I did, yeah. Well, again, my, my mission in life, and, and this is a great tip for your listeners, what do you want to do with your life? Now, that's very hard to know the answer to that. And I didn't know when I was 18 either by the way you know but i've always wanted to be a scientist and make discoveries and then see if those discoveries could be useful right now it's the companies who make the discoveries useful because i might make the discovery and i might get a publication and be known for this discovery but to make it into a medicine you've got to go into industry really and several times they almost jumped you know in 1999 i almost moved to boston for example to work for a company there now i've been lucky connell in that i've had the best of both worlds so I've got my academic stuff going, my discoveries of what's happening, and then I've got my own company, you know. And also then I might consult for big companies often ask my opinion because they because I'm an expert, you know, and I've been doing a lot of that as well. So, so I've kind of mixed and matched the two in many ways. So to go and work on the private side, they kind of own you more, you know, and they pay you very well. 
but they own you. If you're an academic, you're freer. And I've always liked the freedom of, of, of being in the university and then having, having access to the other stuff at the same time. Yeah. And if you just like, if you'd imagine an 18 or 17, 18 year old listening to this now, like what sort of personality type or what sort of like interest would you say would your kind of role suit? If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, do what you're interested in by far and away. That's 99% of it. Try to figure out what interest in it can be anything. I don't care what it is. It can be music. It can be art, it can be business, it can be dentistry, it can be whatever the hell it is. Okay? Try to figure out something that you're interested in because if you pick something that you're not interested in, it'll be torture for you. You'll drag yourself into the lectures. You'll be struggling through the exams. Now, now the mystery then is how do you find what you're interested in, really, you know, and try to, try to figure that one out as well. And Just whatever you enjoyed, really, in a sense. Now, to be a scientist, though, you need certain skills for definite. I mean, you've got to be able to... I suppose uh, understand numbers. Mathematics is important for science. You know, you've got to you've got to be able to get your head around quite complex concepts here and there. You know, and then be very systematic, be very organised. Like if you're in a lab, you've got to make notes all the time. So you need that side of it. But the number one trait you need to be a great scientist is imagination. You've got to imagine what might happen. Like imagine if this vaccine works. Imagine if I get the immune system to behave in a certain way and get ideas and that's a really important part of being a scientist as well so, so in other words you need a few different traits really i think a big one is a sense of adventure because you got to get stick your neck out and try and make discoveries that, that's what it, that, it takes years the key trait you need is diligence by the way and perseverance it's not easy you know but that's like anything in life anything that's difficult you know uh, is worthwhile in a sense definitely yeah uh, would you say like you saw your diligence imagination and uh, openness was there any activities you did when you were younger that kind of gave you an idea that this route would be good for you? Like, I know you were in, like, inter interested in music and that, but was there other things as well? I think I, mean, I was quite good at science, you know, in school. Like, I got good grades, you know, and I, was, I was, and I was very good at biology in the end. I got, a, I got a very good grade for that one, you see. I think once you're good at something, it makes it a bit easier then, you know, yeah, and if yeah. you start getting grades, that gives you more confidence. Oh, I might be good at this. And if you're in any doubt at all, actually, if you're skillful at something, it can be anything. That may be the thing for you. Now, how do you know you're skillful? You will pass the exam, or a teacher might say to you, you're very good at this, or your parents might say, stick at this because you're good at it, you know? And it can be sports. Like, like, I mean, you know, if you're playing football and you're quite good, you can pick up the team, you get to play, you score a goal, that all boosts your confidence, remember? So, so, so that's all. remember that if you're good at something, it may well be the thing for you to do. And never be put off by people criticizing you, or there's always people putting you down in life, remember? <laughs> Ignore them. Ignore them is the tip here, you know, and just just try to ma imagine again the word imagination. Was you know, if, if you really want to do something, just stick at it and get used to the failures as much as the success. Definitely, yeah, and uh, it's mad because like you managed to stick in Ireland for oh, I know you went abroad and for a while, but and you had chances in I said '99 to go to Boston and that. Yeah, and what was kind of the reason do you think you stayed? Like the main well, reason, would you say? Well, the beauty of it is, um, science is very international. So I was always on the road. Before COVID happened, I'd be away a third of the time, all over the world, right? I'd be in America, Australia, visiting collaborators, because it's a very collaborative thing. Or I might visit universities to give lectures, go to conferences to talk what we're doing, you know? The business side, a lot of travel, visiting companies and describing stuff. So I was always, I, I, was, I, was, I was in Ireland about, about, you know, about two thirds of the time and away one third of the time. Uh, I did sabbaticals. If you're an academic, you can go. I spent um, six months in Boston, which almost made me stay there. I spent six months in Australia, in, in Melbourne, for, for working in the university there called Monash. I spent nearly a year in the UK in 2016, working in a company called GSK, and also in Cambridge. So in other words, it is very international anyway, you know. 
But what made me stay in Ireland was very simple. We have great students here. And I was never uh, unable to recruit into my lab. Because you become like a football manager in the end, like you're selecting your team, you know. And I was great. We great students from UCD. We two, two of my best came from UCD. We have a great ones from Trinity, some from UCC, you know. So in other words, it's it's great. We've got great talent in Ireland, basically. So if you, if you can build your football team and you can start winning, uh, you know, medals or whatever it is, why go anywhere else? And that, that kept me here, really. And then the last piece in the puzzle comes funding. You need money. To, to, to recruit the players, you know? And of course, Science Foundation Ireland were a big supporter of my research. Our own government were investing in science. And that meant I could raise the money to do my research. Jesus, mm -hmm. it sounds like uh, the collection of everything you need, really needed. And then. Exactly. Yeah, you need, you need uh, several things to make it work, you might say. Right? And in Ireland, we were lucky, lucky enough to have these things. Mm -hmm. And you touched on the fact that you got a chance to go abroad, like even six months in Boston and Melbourne and a year in the UK. Was there any like specific events that you got a chance to go to that was kind of like, how am I here? Or this is mind blowing. Like, I can't believe I got a chance to go and have a look at this. Or is yeah. it over the course of your career? Were there a few? Oh, God, yeah. Well, I mean, the beauty of it is, now, I'm not joking. I've been everywhere. Right? So, like, conferences are held all over the world. New York, San Francisco. And I always try and do a bit of sightseeing and check out the bars mainly. Actually go for a drink in, in, the, in the best bar and the best restaurants. It's great. And, and often someone's paying because they're, they're, they're hosting me, which is great, you know. Uh, so I'll, I always try and mix and match um, a, bit, a bit of tourism in with the travel, I suppose. And then the other big thing for me, though, was that the one in 2016, to work in GSK was tremendous because there's a huge drug company, one of the world's biggest, you know. And I was allowed to go to any meeting I wanted. I could meet all the experts, you know. They've got great equipment, great, great facilities, you know. And to learn about the drug discovery process up close like that was a real thrill, you see. So, so again, um, it's a privilege to be able to do it, I suppose. But, but, but the travel part, anybody who is thinking about being a scientist, right, it's extremely international. So, so people who have done PhDs with me, they're all over the world now, you know. There's three of them in Harvard at the moment. One's in Cambridge in the UK. One went to Oxford, you know. I've got another one in Australia. So, in other words, the, 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 the world's your oyster if you have a science degree. Because it allows you to go anywhere in the world, really. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Now, that makes sense a lot. And you did say earlier on that, like, you had the high-quality students coming to you when you're in, in Trinity yourself. Yeah. What would you be looking for in the students? Like, I know you've kind of mentioned imagination, creativity, and uh, diligence as well. Are, yeah. they the same, are they the same traits, or is there anything extra that you um, kind of notice? Well, when someone applies to me to work for me, say, to do a PhD, this would be mainly, you know, or a master's and those, those more post-grad stuff, right? I look for a few things, all right? They've, they've got to get good grades. If you've got grades, now that sounds like a bit unfair because people who get bad grades could still be geniuses, you know? But the reason is I've got to have some way to select people. I, I get about five CVs a week to give an idea. How do I, how do I sort them, you know? So mm -hmm. good grade, that, that's the first sign. Oh, that guy's got a good grade, okay? Or that woman. Then secondly, are they interested in what I'm doing, you know? Mm -hmm. No, that I mean a degree in immunology or a degree in biochemistry or degree in molecular medicine or whatever, that's relevant to me. I'm not going to take on someone with a degree in accountancy, am I? Because they haven't been trained to work on my lab. So a science degree, good grade, and then if their project, if they'd worked on stuff that I'm working on, it's a bit nothing to be the same in immunology, say if they've worked on macrophages or whatever it is, oh, that looks good now, you know. Then I get them to the interview, right? And that's a really important part. And I can tell within a few minutes, isn't it, isn't it amazing? Now, what I mean by that is, they'll say, for example, if someone just up for an interview, and says, oh, oh, Luke, thanks for inviting me for an interview. I read your very interesting paper last week. It really fascinated me. They're off and running, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In other words, they've got to express interest. And then I might ask them a few questions. I might test their knowledge a bit. And, and then I see if they'll fit, because I'm trying to build a team here, you know? 
So in other words, I'll try to see will, will they fit with the rest of the lab. Very hard. That, that's a bit of a touchy feely thing. But uh, now I often take on people who who are just brilliant anyway. You know, it's not, it's not as if um, you know I'm, I'm doing psychometric profiling or anything like that. Um, and then I and then give them a go. And the main thing though is interest actually. If they're really interested in what we're doing, then there's a good chance they might get a spot in my lab, you know. So that, that's the way I look at it. Um, and as I said, the grade, the grades come into that partly, by the way. And and luckily enough, I've done quite well. I've recruited good people over the years. <laughs> no, um, I, were you ever, do you ever ask like a kind of a curveball question in an interview? Because I know a friend of mine when he was applying for Cambridge. I think if the, I, can't, I could be getting this wrong, but do you think you applied to like different houses in Cambridge before yeah. you get in? Um, yeah. Different houses of different sort of getting in, and I one was like. Or one was like solely interview based, and uh, I think he's telling me uh, like a scary story about a fellow went before him, where your man, the interviewer, just gave him like a, a ball as like throw this out the window, and he <laughs> ran through, he ran through it out the window, smashed the window, and the fellow said, "Okay, you're not coming in." <laughs> Good lord! Yeah. Well, here's a tip: Come on, just be yourself. Be yourself. We look for authenticity in people. You know what I mean? Don't try and fake it. Don't try and pretend to be something you're not. You know, because you'll see, you'll see through that. You know, just react normally. You can't prepare for those things. You know. If you're going for an interview, of course you'll prepare it a bit and know what the job is and you get to try to guess what they're looking for and so on, you know. Uh, but certainly just answer as best you can. If they throw you a, a weird question or a strange question, just answer as you see fit according to your own uh, your own personality and your own interests. So be authentic is a really important tip in interviews. Mm -hmm. And do you find it like tricky to go from like, so say you're working with these uh, your colleagues who are clearly very well versed in the same field that you're in, and then you're on your own podcast talking to the regular folk like myself who are just trying to get the kind of the five minute version of it. Do you find it hard to like articulate something that's very complicated in layman's terms, we'll say? I've got used to it over the years as a skill. You know, you learn as you go along. I've been doing it for a good few years now. Uh, it begins though, for me, it all began kind of a lecturing anyway, remember? Because I, I give them, I, I, the first year is in Trinity, okay? I used to give them their first 15 lectures in biology, you know what I mean? The first 15 lectures. Many wouldn't have done biology. So it's like talking to a lay audience who aren't experts, you know? So you learn how to communicate through teaching. Right. And then I realized I can do it to the general public as well. You know, I start doing it that way. I don't see it any, any different, by the way. I mean, I, I'm, and I'm full of all this knowledge. Right. And why wouldn't I share it with anybody who wants to listen? Now, you learn how to do it in a way that's accessible. But always think of your audience. There's no point in using technical immunology jargon because they, they'll, they'll turn off, you know, so be very careful. And if you do use a piece of jargon, define it carefully as best you can use analogies, there's ways to do it, basically, you know. Mm -hmm. Because during COVID, more than ever, I've had to mention antibodies, I have an IT cells and all these things, and, and, and wonderfully, the Irish public know what an antibody is now, I think, so it's great. But it's definitely a skill, though, and you can learn it, and any, anybody can learn how to communicate science. Really. Mm -hmm, for sure. And what the areas do you reckon that the general public maybe, like, I'm including myself in this, because I've noticed they're trying to understand the whole, like, um, the problems that we have now with COVID, but yeah. what areas do you reckon the public are kind of getting mixed up on? Do you know what I mean? Like, is there like a, yeah. Yeah, well, it can, be, it can be difficult because there's misinformation out there as well, remember, and there's lots of stuff on the internet that lead people down rabbit holes and it's all wrong, or there's malign actors here as well trying to distract people away from the truth, you might say, you know? So it's hard for the general public, I think, you know? Um, and, and it can get very technical. So I think the advice always is, trust your good instincts. Does that person look believable? You know, do I follow what they're saying? Are they, are they not selling me a pup? You know, that kind of thing, you know? And I think now more than ever with the vaccines is a good example, really, you know, like, well, like, why would you, um, why would you believe someone who says vaccines shouldn't be taken when every single regulatory agency in the world says take them and every doctor says take them, you know, so it's a funny one, isn't it? And, and this is advice for everybody, even primary school kids, you know, you know, always look at the factors that look right to you. 
uh, is someone reputable saying it? You know, this kind of thing can help in that sort of that sort of area. Mm -hmm, definitely. And uh, with regards to, we'll say, COVID in general, um, how do you reckon it's going to go? Like, will, do you reckon they'll vaccinate, we'll say, from 30 downwards, or will they give those kind of doses to where maybe a country that's less well off or less far ahead? Any predictions? It's a good debate. I mean, I, I think they should, actually. Yeah. See, this disease doesn't really affect young people, you know, so they're, they're not at risk. And you want to vaccinate the vulnerable young people, of course, you know. But mm -hmm. most young people, they fight this virus, they build their immunity, they're fine, you know. There's a strong case to say give the vax over 18s, uh, be, do the over 18s, maybe even, as you say, maybe even the over 30s, you know. Uh, but certainly give give any spare vaccine away to countries that really need it. And I'm talking about India, there's devastating scenes from there, there's loads of vulnerable people dying in those countries. Why not give our vaccine away once we've vaccinated all the ones at risk, greedy, you know. Mm -hmm. There's a case for that, actually. Now, the argument against that is it's spreading among young people, you know. But if you've done the vulnerable, that doesn't matter they're not going to get sick if they get infected anyway you know but that's a really active debate at the moment i'd be in favor of uh of not vaccinating the under 18s definitely at this stage it might do them later you know yeah but for the moment it's hard to justify that the bit that i always get kind of tricky on is like where would you define uh the like the age that you kind of it's like pretty low let's say I, i'd say under 30 is pretty pretty bulletproof let's face it you know so i'd even be looking at vaccinating the over 30s and then giving giving the vaccine away for a while you know mm -hmm. that makes sense and uh, if you had a magic wand, like, would you would you leave it at that? And would you open like colleges for September and all that kind of stuff? Oh, for, oh, what oh, definitely, oh, definitely. Because the damaging the damaging effect of these things is severe. Remember, so we, as you well know, we've arrested people's lives in so many ways. That's unacceptable. That can't go on forever. It was justifiable up to a point, but not anymore. You know. So I would have testing. Remember, your other big weapon here is testing. It makes sense to test people if they're positive. They don't go into college that day, and then they don't spread the virus. You know. That's a surefire way to slow down spread. It was always sensible, you know. So I think test testing, uh, and then um, and then maybe at the vaccine question. I suppose there may be a push to vaccinate college students because they're going to be exposed a lot. You never know that might come in as well. But at a minimum, you want to have good testing in place by the time September comes around. Uh -huh, definitely, yeah. And should you be able to go back into the labs yourself, address your colleagues? Well, uh, no, we're okay. Though. No, we're allowed yeah. running. You see, because we we work on COVID, so we reopened our labs back in March, twelve months, if you can believe. How long ago was that? Because yeah. we were in a COVID lab, so we, we, we haven't really been affected that way. It's just the students have been affected. Like one example is the fourth year project students couldn't come in much to do their projects, and that was a shame because it's a very important part of their training and their degree. We did a bit, they came in for four weeks instead of, uh, I think it's normally uh, 12. They got something, you know, but but still, they got to get back to the way it was, especially for, that, for those people. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, with regards to like, the testing, I know there's the PCR one, and, and there's also the antigen tests. And like I know the antigen tests aren't perhaps as like accurate as the other ones, but one question I had was like, say you took four antigen tests in a row, does your probability of, of being correct is it like do you know what I mean? Like is it if you yeah. do four tests and three of them are right or one of them is wrong, you got the right answer, if that makes sense? You know well, I mean? yeah, that, that's reproducibility for science is great, you know. But no, I think with the antigen test is very simple. If you're positive, you're very likely to be positive. Okay. Mm -hmm. The level of false positivity is low in those tests. Like as many as 98% positive, right? Okay. So that means just stay home. It's very simple. If you're negative, assume nothing. Assume you've not, not even taken the test, you know? So your behavior should not change. Keep the distancing. Be careful. Wear a mask and all the guidelines read at the moment. Now, once the virus goes away, Connell, well, then there's no risks to anybody anymore, you know? So we need to worry yeah, about yeah. But certainly in this phase of it, the next two to three months, if you test negative on a little VOD antigen test, assume you haven't taken the test, okay? If you test positive, stay home, get a PCR test, talk to your GP. That's a simple advice with these tests.
Ah, uh, definitely. And uh, I'll let you go after this one, but I have one last question for yourself. So, like, the, all the sports are going to be coming back this summer now, and currently to have the restrictions in place. I know you haven't got the authority to change anything, but would it be? Would you reckon it'd be safe to have like hundreds of people at games? Yeah. Like, yeah, definitely. Like yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's all about the vaccination campaign. If we get to eighty percent of the Irish people vaccinated over eighteen, say we get to that point of notwithstanding the under thirteen question, uh, if we get to that point, say late June. That's a fantastic achievement. We can now begin to implement the vaccine bonus, the vaccine dividend, and that will allow people to gather who are vaccinated, okay? And that means at a football match, and even indoors, potentially, ultimately, certainly outdoors, they can all meet up and do whatever the hell they like, you know? So mm -hmm. you can look at hundreds, if not thousands of spectators. And of course, the pilot ones are running at the moment. You know, the FA Cup was a good example in, in uh, Wembley, you know? And the Irish, they're planning now these pilot events coming up in the next week. That makes perfect sense. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed that they, they, they run safely yeah. and nobody gets infected. Then by the time you get to the GAA, why not have thousands of people attend that final? It'd be brilliant, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So we're heading in the right direction in that regard. Yeah, yeah. So you'd be ready to headline EP then this year, will you? With the, with the... I, they can't afford me now, Come, You know, they can't afford me. My fee is too high for that. <laughs> no, sure. You never uh, know. Just thanks a million for this again. I know you're flat out to the mat, so I'll, I'll leave you at that. No Appreciate problem. That. Thanks, Connor. Very interesting questions. That's the end of another episode. I hope you've taken something away from this, and I'll catch you in the next one. Until then, good luck.